Our Old Testament reading this morning is Micah chapter 5. It's page 821 in the Church Bible. Micah chapter 5. This is the Word of God. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And this one shall be peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and when he treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass that tarry for no man, nor wait for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a a young lion among flocks of sheep who if he passes through, both treads down and tears in pieces, and none can deliver. Your hand shall be lifted against your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your your hand, and you shall have no soothsayers. Your carved images I will also cut off, and your sacred pillars from your midst. You shall no more worship the work of your hands. I will pluck your wooden images from your midst. Thus I will destroy your cities. And I will execute vengeance in anger and fury on the nations that have not heard. We read there of the prophecy of one to be born, a ruler in Judah, king of Israel, to be born in Bethlehem. And he's going to bring salvation He's going to shepherd his people. He's also going to bring judgment, both on his people who refuse to believe and give up their idolatry and on the surrounding nations who do the same. In Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12, which is our New Testament reading, we see uh, that that passage in Micah quoted as, as it's pointed out that Jesus Christ is born in Bethlehem. Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, 
are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. When they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, once again, we bow before you and we ask that you would be at work in our hearts, that you would give us hearts that hear and believe and trust. Keep our hearts from being hardened by your word. Make your word like a sword that pierces to the very core, like a hammer that breaks our pride and our sin and our unbelief in pieces. And make your, make your word to us like a, like, a, uh, like a bomb, like an ointment that comes and brings healing and brings trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. As we pray for his sake. Amen. Why should we study the Gospels? Why in particular the Gospel of Matthew? We're starting this series in Matthew. Um, why? What's the reason behind it? Well, you could say it's the Word of God. Just pick a book and and it's worth it. It's relevant. It's the Word of God. It's always relevant. But there's something that is unique and special about the Gospels. The Gospels show us the Lord Jesus Christ. All Scripture does. From Genesis 1-1 to the very end to Revelation, it all is about Christ. It's all showing us Christ, teaching us about Him. But in the Gospels, there's a particular vividness to it. We get to see and hear Jesus. We get to see his actions. We get to see him in the flesh, walking and talking with human beings. And and we get to hear his words, his life-giving words, and see his glorious miracles pointing to who he is. And we get to see his death and his resurrection for us. The Gospels are uniquely precious because they show us Christ with such vivid color. And as the uh, great theologian J.C. Ryle has said, we can never hear too much about the Lord Jesus Christ. We can never hear too much about Christ. So I think it's good in the life of a church to come back periodically to the Gospels and have a series in the Gospels. I also think it's a good way for us to begin as we're thinking about um, uh, what is the mission of our church? What should our church be, be, be doing? What, what has God called Limington OPC to be and to do in this area at this time? And a great place to go for that is the Gospel of Matthew. Because Matthew lays out so clearly what the church is called to do and to be. Matthew lays out for us the kingdom of heaven 
And how this, this is the substance of what Christ has come and proclaimed and established. He's come and He's brought a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And He calls His disciples to be His witnesses to that kingdom. So we need to go and see what He's calling us to do as witnesses for His kingdom. It lays out the, 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 the work of the church that, that He's given us to do. So it shows us Christ. It shows us who we are, what we're to be doing as disciples of Christ. And it's so fitting, it's so fitting for us, loved ones. It's so relevant for us too, because it, it refocuses our attention where it should be. It's so easy to get distracted by the, the by the seen things, the visible things. To get our hearts caught up with the things of earth. And and there are many who would say that the church should be talking more about the things of earth, to be relevant and helpful and useful and pragmatic. But what we need is a refocusing of our hearts on the things that are unseen. Christ. His kingdom. That's what we need most. That's what we need most in our own hearts and lives. It's what we need most in our families. It's what we need most here in our church. So that's why this series in Matthew that we're starting, we're still in the book of origins. We're still in the origin story. These first two chapters of Matthew lay out for us the origin story of Jesus Christ. Sort of like Batman Begins. It's the first installment. It lays out who is this Who is this hero? What's his mission? Where does he come from? We've already seen a few important things about Jesus the Christ. Um, Matthew's highlighted for us already in chapter 1 uh, that, that he's, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. He, he uses that genealogy there to show us that he's the son of Abraham. Right? The promise to Abraham is that, that you're going to have a son, and through one of your descendants, the whole world will be blessed. And Matthew says, Jesus is that son of Abraham. He brings the blessing of God's salvation to the whole world, to every nation. It, he also tells us that he's the promised son of David, the royal son of David, who would be the great king who would come and defeat Israel's enemies and, and establish a perfect and everlasting kingdom and bring in a perfect reign of peace and prosperity for Israel. Matthew has told us that he's also born of the Holy Spirit, not born of a human father, born of the Spirit. This is no mere man. This is God himself come in the flesh. God with us, Emmanuel, who's come to do what? To save sinners. That's what his name means, Jesus, the one who comes to save sinners. So all that is what Matthew's shown us so far in chapter 1. Then, in chapter 2, the origin story continues. We're not yet to the main narrative that begins in chapter 3. We're still in, in, in the origins story here. We see these same themes that we saw in chapter 1 reinforced and fleshed out. We're going to see that. But we're also going to see in, here in chapter 2, and starting this morning and, and, and next week, Lord willing also, that this origin story isn't all um, unicorns and rainbows. Uh, this isn't all, a, it's not a rosy picture by any means. Uh, as Jesus comes, conflict comes. Opposition comes. Hatred comes. Even before he is able to speak, he has enemies who want him dead. And these themes are going to show up throughout the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus has come as a king and he's come to do battle with those who would oppose him. And there are many who would oppose him. And, and 
what the text here in, in Matthew chapter 2 in particular is doing for us, loved ones, is forcing the question on us then, how will we, we respond to King Jesus? Will we worship him? Will we join with the Magi, the wise men, and bow down before him, submit ourselves to him, worship him, and own, own him as our Savior? Or are we going to be hostile towards him? Or are we going to ignore him? That's the question Matthew is putting to us this morning in the text. He starts his story here with the setting. He gives us the setting. And as he does give us this, the setting for the story, the location and the main characters, he sets up for us a powerful contrast. We often think of uh, this as the story of the three kings, right? The three, the three kings uh, because of the Christmas carol. We three kings of Orient are, or because of our nativity sets that we have. And the, unfortunately, um, there probably weren't three, but there might have been three. Uh, we think of that because of the three gifts that they bring, but who knows how many. I might get three gifts for Christmas from my one wife. Uh, three gifts might not mean three kings. It could, uh, but not necessarily. There could have been 30 of them. Who knows how many there were. Um, also, they probably weren't kings. There's nothing in the text to suggest that. They're magi, they're wise men, um, astrologers, perhaps. But anyway, we often think of this story as the story of the three kings, but as one of the commentators pointed out so helpfully, this is really the story of the two kings. And as, the, as Matthew sets up the story for us, he says, no, there, there are two kings here. And they are opposed to each other. Notice how the text sets this up. First, it mentions Jesus, born in Bethlehem. Right? Matthew's already established through Matthew chapter 1, without a doubt, Jesus is the king, the Christ, the royal son of David, the Messiah. He has come, and he's going to have a throne, and he's going to reign forever. All authority, all power. But notice how Matthew describes Jesus in verse 1 he says, verse one here of chapter 2, he says, He is Jesus, and he is the newborn baby in Bethlehem. Right? Not in Jerusalem, not in the palace. He is a, he is a baby in a small, out-of-the-way, humble town. In contrast with that, then we turn and we see Herod who's actually given the title king here in, the, in, in chapter 2. And where is he? He's in Jerusalem. He's in the capital. He's in the palace. You see the contrast Matthew's setting up. We have the one who is born to be king, born uh, as king of the Jews, the one who is the royal son of David, but he is just a baby in out-of-the-way Bethlehem. And then there's Herod. Herod is known as Herod the Great. He is proud and he's powerful and he's cruel. He's a tyrant. He has, uh, uh, he, has, he has lots of influence. Uh, he's, he's known for his building projects. He's known for murdering one of his wives and two of his own sons. This is a man with power. This is a man you'd be afraid of. This looks like a real king, but also a terrifying one. And we're going to see more of their clash later on in chapter 2. No sooner is the king of the kingdom of heaven born, then the deadly opposition from the kingdom of this world begins. And you can hear, even as, even as the text, even as Matthew sets up for us, this opposition between these two kings, you can hear in the background Psalm 2, right? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His Messiah, His anointed Christ. 
So on the one hand, the text is saying Herod is a king. Yes, that's right. Herod's a king, but he's only an earthly king. He is a king for about a moment. He's a king, but his power is limited. And he is not going to bring Israel the kind of peace and prosperity, uh, the kind of freedom and flourishing that they need. No, he's actually a cruel ruler and a tyrant, an unjust king. He exploits people. He doesn't serve people. And on the other hand, what do we have? On the other side is Christ, of course, King Jesus. Yes, from an earthly perspective, he looks humble and weak, but, but what have we already learned about him? His name means Savior. He is the one who is going to save his people from their sins. And as the text says in, uh, uh, here in chapter 2, he is the one who's going to shepherd his people Israel. He's going to be a king who tends the flock, who doesn't act like a wolf among them like Herod. He acts like a shepherd among them. He's gracious. He feeds his flock. He protects his flock. He heals his flock. Lays down his life for his flock. So who's the real king? Matthew is setting up that question for us. Whom do the Magi come and bow down to? Not Herod. They come to King Jesus. So there's two kings. Two kings that we see as the text begins. But then Matthew turns to another contrast. He's shown us that there's these two kings, Jesus and Herod. And then he turns, and then he looks at three ways that we respond to the true king, Jesus. Three ways that we can respond to him. First, he shows us how unbelievers reject Christ. And he gives us, there's two types of unbelievers that we see in the text and the way they respond to King Jesus. First, there are those who are hostile to Jesus. They hear that Jesus is born, that he's the king, and they reject him. They're angry. They're defensive. Uh, and this is what we see in King Herod, isn't it? We see that he finds out about Christ being born as king, and verse 4 tells us that he is, uh, verse, verse 3 tells, excuse me, is that he is deeply troubled. The word means terrified. He is terrified of this news, that there is Another king, because if if the Christ is the king and he's been born, it means that Herod's days are numbered, that his kingship is soon going to be over. So he's going to start plotting how to destroy this child, how to kill him. Um, He finds out from the Jewish experts in the law where Jesus was to be born, and he is going to try to wipe out the king who is going to be there. He wants the Magi to go, find out precisely where Jesus is, come back and give him the street address so he can punch it in to his GPS and send his hitmen after him. Of course, uh, they're, they're not going to do that for him because of God's intervention. But this is what Herod wants to do. He is hostile to King Jesus. He would rather kill the long-promised Christ and stop everything that that Christ would bring, all the glories of that salvation, which could include him if he would repent. He'd rather kill him and keep his own kingdom. Loved ones, I want you to see with me the shape of Herod's unbelief here. It's not that he's an atheist. It's not that he says, uh, uh, no, Jesus isn't really the king. He believes that Jesus is the king. But he won't bow. He hates that Jesus is the king. He believes the Magi's story. He believes what the scriptures have prophesied about Jesus. And he hates it. Doesn't want anything to do with it. He won't submit. 
we need to ask ourselves if there's any of that response in our own hearts to Jesus. Do we ever say, yes, Lord, I acknowledge that you are the king. I, I recognize who you are. I believe that you are the king, but I don't like it. I don't want you to be the king in my life. I don't want to submit myself to you. I want to stay on the throne of my own little kingdom. Thank you very much. I don't want you to reign over me. We saw a little bit of this last uh, two weeks ago as we were looking at uh, Christ's kingship. Right? He, he is the king over everything, with all authority, over every single aspect of our lives. And I think Herod saw that. And he hated it. What about us? What about you, loved ones? A contest with King Christ only ends one way. Herod should have known this. He should have known that Psalm 2 ends like this. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. That's a severe warning for us. Don't oppose King Jesus. That's how some people respond. Sometimes perhaps that's how you and I respond, isn't it? At least in part to the kingship of Christ. There's another way we can respond to him, though, that is not so hostile, but it's no less deadly. And this is the attitude of indifference. There's hostility, and then there's also indifference. We see this among the chief priests, the scribes. Herod hears of this king who's been born. He's, he hears from the Magi. They've come looking for the Christ. And um, he calls together the experts in the Old Testament. He calls up the, the seminary professors and the big-name pastors and the Ph.D. students in theology. And he gets them all together, and they all come, and he says, where is the Christ going to be born? And they say, that's an easy one, in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. Uh, and they quote it for him. Bethlehem is, of course, the city where David is from. It's where David was born, and it's the city where the son of David is prophesied to be born. So, the, 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 the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they come, they hear about this, they know the right answers, they know what the Scriptures say, they hear what the Magi have to say, but how do they respond? They say, finally! Praise the Lord. The Messiah is here. Let's go. Let's go make sure this is let's, let's go make sure this checks out according to scripture. We don't hear any of this. Isn't it amazing? Not a single one of the scribes that Herod calls together says, "Hey, you know what? Let me come with you, wise men, and let me just check this out." Not a one of them is even curious enough to make the 7-mile trip from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. They're indifferent. Maybe, maybe they are simply happy with the position that they have. They don't want it troubled. Or maybe they just are writing off the Magi as charlatans, lunatics. Maybe they, um, maybe they just don't care about the Christ. That It's more of an idea, a concept that they discuss and talk about, but not someone they actually want to have to submit to. Loved ones, this reaction to Christ maybe even more dangerous than being full of hostility towards him because it's so self-deceptive and because it so often happens in those who are most religious, most familiar with the Scriptures. We see it happen often, don't we, 
We see it happen in children of the church who, 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 who drift away, perhaps in college or at a new job or in a new place. They, they drift away because they haven't committed themselves to Christ. They feel somewhat indifferent towards Him. We, we know it in our own hearts, don't we? Our, our, how easy it is to drift and become cold and indifferent and shrug our shoulders at the things of the Gospel and of Christ. J.C. Ryle, again, writes this, "...how often the very people who live nearest to the means of grace..." are those who neglect them the most. How often the very people who live nearest to the means of grace are those who neglect them the most. That's what the scribes are doing. Are we doing that? Are you doing that? Indifferent to Christ. But there's another response. There's hostility. There's indifference. There's one more response, and that's, of course, the response of the Magi. They don't hate Christ. They're not indifferent to Him at all. No. They come to worship Him. They are enthralled with Christ. They are driven to seek Him out. And no distance is too great. No obstacle is too great. They will seek out Christ, find Him, and worship Him. Who are these Magi? Um, The text here calls them wise men. In the New King James, it's a fine translation. There's speculation about who they, who they are, who they were. It seems like they were probably from Babylon, um, where there was a, quite a prominent Jewish community, so they would have heard about the prophecies about the Messiah. They would have heard something about that. And that's how they would have known that a Christ was promised for the Jews to be their king. Um, they're probably astrologers, um, magicians of some sort, um, probably of, a, uh, of, a, of an upper class, it seems from their gifts that they give that they're, that they're well-to-do. These are rich gifts they give. But we don't get a whole lot of insight into them. Uh, just, just the fact that they are from the East. That they're not Jews. They're not Israelites. They're Gentiles from perhaps Babylon. And maybe, maybe as they're there in Babylon, they heard this text, Numbers twenty four seventeen: A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And so they're looking, and the Lord gives this miraculous sign. He shows them this star. Or perhaps they read Isaiah 60, verse 3. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. They know that this promised king is coming. They see the star. The Lord does a wonderful, miraculous work in them, and and their hearts compel them to seek out this Christ. It was, no, um, it was no easy trip. It was not a mild curiosity that, that led them on this journey at all. This was not an easy trip at all. It was a hard trip. If they're coming from Babylon, it's over 400 miles as the crow flies. They are, they are dedicated to this. There's no distance that's too great or difficulty that's too much that's going to keep them from Christ. They will travel to the ends of the earth just to see Christ, even as a baby, and bow down and worship Him. As I was thinking over what they, uh, their, their, their zeal to see the Lord Jesus Christ, I was reminded of um, a bit I read from Ben Hopp, our missionary in Haiti, about what he goes through to get to a worship service on the island of Laganov in Haiti on the Lord's Day. He shared this, I think it was in New Horizons last February, but this is what he writes about his experience of, of, of how he has to get to worship on the Lord's Day. He says, how long... Does it take you to get to church on Sunday? Half an hour? An hour? More? Less? 
For me, getting to the island of Laganov to preach is a two-day trek. On Saturday morning, I head to the public wharf, which is a mile from the mission home, to catch a speedboat. Waiting is a significant part of the trip. There's no scheduled voyages to this island of 100,000 inhabitants. The ferry comes from Laganov and heads back once a day. Speedboats go back and forth until early afternoon. I wait for a speedboat to arrive, and I wait for it to be deemed full enough to leave, usually when it's loaded with about 25 passengers. Once we're away from the wharf, we might have to bob up and down in the middle of the strait a few times as the crew removes plastic bags and trash from the propeller blades. This ride takes anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour. When the boat finally arrives at the wharf, I wait for everyone to pile off with their stuff, then I get off. Then I wait for a ride to take me where the Kawasaki mule is stored. This is the mission's vehicle for transport on the rough roads of the island. So there's lots of waiting, Ben Hop says. Then he says, once I have the mule, I need to prepare it for the trip out to the churches. It's dusty, so I have it washed at the local car wash. The men scrub it clean and rinse it. Loganov's roads are continuing to deteriorate, so I ensure the tires are properly inflated and that I have enough diesel to get up to the churches and back. Now my focus turns to the guest house. I purchase fuel for the small generator. I get it up and running so I have electricity. I pump water into the storage tank on the roof so I have running water to the kitchen and bathroom. Then I make supper, have a quick shower, and head to bed. The next morning is Sunday, and the wait is finally over. I head out to the churches shortly after 7 a.m., In an hour or two, I will finally be with the saints. Is all the waiting and preparation worth it? Absolutely. What a joy it is to meet the Lord together with the saints, to preach the good news of Jesus Christ and to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. That's Ben Hop's experience, getting to worship on a Lord's Day. That's what he will will go through to go out and preach at uh, the island of Laganov in Haiti. It's a little picture of what the wise men are doing, the magi. Here in Matthew 2. Their trip is much longer. What about us, loved ones? How easy is it to persuade us to stay away from the Lord Jesus Christ? Sunday worship. Our Bibles at home. How, how much does it take to persuade us not to go pick up the Word and read it in the morning? How easy is it for us? How, how difficult does it have to be for us before we give up on pursuing Christ and seeking Him out? The Magi are a wonderful example to us, aren't they? Their commitment. What are they doing? They're coming to worship Christ. They came all this way in order to worship him. That word could just mean that they came to pay tribute to him like a monarch or a sovereign. But I think as we're reading it in the context of Matthew's gospel, it really means they're coming to worship him, whether they fully understand it or not, as the king who is God himself come in the flesh. So they come to worship him. What a scene that must have been. And imagine the scene as, as they come, they knock at the door, Mary comes and opens the door, perhaps Joseph does. All right, and, and, and these strange magi, perhaps a whole crowd of them, men from the East who don't talk like you and, and you've never met them before and they're there to worship the Lord Jesus, the baby. They come in, they bow down. This little baby is the king and they bow down before him and they offer him these gifts, these royal gifts of tribute, gold, frankincense and myrrh. Showing what? Showing that they are submitting themselves to Christ the King. They are bowing down to Christ the King. T.S. Eliot, the great poet, 
uh, wrote a poem called The Journey of the Magi, and he imagines their experience in coming to, uh, to, to, to Christ uh, there and bowing down and worshiping him, and he describes it as a death, that it would have felt like a kind of death to them. He writes this, Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence, and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter for us, like death. Our death. I think that is spot on. In other words, they're bowing down to Christ, and they're dying to themselves as they do so. They're, they're casting off their old gods and everything they worshipped and everything they believed. They are dying to themselves to submit to Christ and bow down to him and loved ones, that's what we must do as we come to worship him, dethrone our own hearts as king and put Christ as king. But it's not just a bitter death to themselves that they experience as they come to Christ. It's also wonderfully a great joy. The text tells us that when they see the star that's over the place where Jesus is in Bethlehem, they rejoice with exceedingly great joy. They, they, are, they are ecstatic, euphoric, they are, they, are, uh, they, are, they are giddy with happiness to see Christ because even as they see that they have to submit themselves to Christ's authority, they see that he is the king that you would want to submit to because he's come to save you. He's come to redeem you and bless you and give you life and salvation. These magi are Gentile sinners. Magicians were under the curse of the law. You weren't allowed to be a magician by God's law. They are Gentile sinners, not part of the people of God. And yet somehow they know that if they come to Christ, he's going to be gracious to them. They'll receive salvation too. I want you to see the glories of God's grace here, loved ones. As these Babylonian astrologers come and bow before King Jesus, the glories of God's grace to them remind us of the glories of God's grace to us. The, the grace of God permeates this whole origin story that we've been reading, doesn't it? One commentator puts it like this. The whole scene is filled with scandal. We have a teenage mother, a child conceived out of wedlock, lowly and dirty and usually irreligious shepherds, and then the magi, a bunch of star-led wizards, magicians of sorts, Gentile sinners. Like scrap metal to a magnet, the good news draws a hodgepodge of fallen humanity. Like scrap metal to a magnet, the good news draws a hodgepodge of fallen humanity. That's why they've come. Because this is the only one who can save them. And loved ones, the king has come. Yes, he calls us to submit to him, worship him, die to ourselves, bow down to him, submit everything we have and are to him. But he promises us salvation. That's his name, Savior. It's what he's come to do. So come to him. Don't be hostile. Don't be indifferent. Come worship the king. Let's pray. Lord, we would give our hearts to you promptly and sincerely. By your grace, we ask that you do this work in us for Jesus' sake. Amen.